What if we were all a bit more curious? What if we took the time to listen and we helped each other explore ideas through high-quality conversations and powerful questions? If we did those things, it seems probable that we'd all be better off. And those ideas happen to be a part of this thing we call coaching. Shauna Waters and Brody Reardon recently wrote a book all about coaching called The Coaching Shift. And in it, they explain and describe coaching from an evidence-based perspective. Both Shauna and Brody are industrial and organizational psychologists, and they teach coaching together at Georgetown University. Shauna is also an executive at BetterUp, where she works to scale human transformation. And Brody manages her own coaching and consulting practice, Ocular, while executive coaching with the Boda Group. They joined us for a wonderful conversation about the coaching shift, in which we talked about what coaching is, how it works, and what it can do for people, leaders, and organizations. Stay tuned for this phenomenal conversation with Shauna Waters and Brody Reardon. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Shauna and Brody, welcome to the Indigo Podcast. Thank you, Ben. We're, we're happy to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Awesome. So we're going to talk about your book, The Coaching Shift, and a variety of other related things, talking about coaching and what that means. But I actually want to start with something that's at the end of your book, something that you guys wrote. And I want to get your reaction to that. And then we're going to kind of work through some of the other things related to coaching. And this is on page 187 of your book. If you don't have that memorized, even though you're the authors, I'm, I'm sure you um, don't remember it was on every page. But you say on page 187, and I quote, we fervently believe that leveraging a coaching mindset and skill set can shift the way you understand yourself, others, and the world, and how you show up and impact those situations. Perhaps we sound overly optimistic in our beliefs about what is possible. Imagine for a moment what could be possible if everyone let go of judgment, the need to be right, relying on assumptions, and jumping to conclusions. Think of a few people in your life. What would change if each of them picked up these practices, even if only 50% of the time? So what I want to start with, end quote, what I want to start with is your answer to that question. What would happen if a few people in your life uh, picked up these practices, even if just half the time? And Ben, of course, the coach in me wants to turn it around and ask you the question. Well, what about you? That's not, it's my podcast. But we'll, we'll answer, yeah. It's my <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we'll ask all the questions here. <laughs> I asked the questions. <laughs> hmm, let's think about a few scenarios here. Well, some of these people I have in mind, we'd probably seek to un understand each other a little bit better. We'd probably have less, less conflict. We would probably communicate more effectively. We'd probably build more trust with each other. We'd probably have a healthier relationship. Fewer misunderstandings. Sean, about, what about you? What comes to your mind? Yes, <laughs> to all of that. And then I think I would add in, um, we'd probably have less stress and more time. Mm. I just think about, um, I, I can come up with, you know, a dozen workplace examples where 
you know, how often do you or someone else, it's always someone else, someone, someone, not you, but someone like you who dives into, um, instructions or explanation or something like that only to have the other person go, Oh no, I meant, you know, X, Y, Z, where it's like, Oh, I was acting on assumptions without checking them first or, or things like that. So we spend a lot of time yeah. judging, assuming. So know. I wonder if we think even be, you know, beyond the workplace, maybe we think about our families, we think about society at large. If we did those things that you mentioned in terms of actually listening to each other, not making big assumptions about other people and their beliefs, perhaps, or assuming that people see the, see problems and situations the same way we do. What do you think that would do for life? It's like what comes up for me is warmer, like kinder, more connected, uh, probably be more patience. Sure. Openness. Yeah. Yeah. Less war, less conflict. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking about, less yeah, less the, yeah, all the problems. All the problems. No, no, no plastic continents in the ocean. <laughs> Uh, I, Ben, I think even if we take one of those skills of listening, most people are very poor listeners and it's easy to go through the motions of listening, but most people are usually thinking about how they want to respond, what they want to say next. They're picking apart what you're saying as you're speaking. Even if that was the only thing that we took from the book and started actually listening when people spoke, that would be a total game changer. We'd eliminate misunderstandings. Shauna was mentioning assumptions. We would get past assumptions. We would actually respond to what the other person is saying rather than having a ping pong match of two separate dialogues based on what's happening in our heads. So what impact do you think that would have for you, Ben, if you listen to people or if people listen to you in that way? Sure. I, I would take. I, yeah. Yeah. Ben, if you would just listen. <laughs> let Chris answer that. If I would just listen. No, I, so I, no, I would, I would take this uh, even perhaps further than you, than you guys are and say that I think the world would be a little bit better or actually a lot better. Right. I think it would, I think we would enjoy life more. I think we would um, perhaps not be as divisive in our in, in all the ways that we are right now, and I think that would be really good. Um, so yeah, that's where I think some of the central ideas that you express and articulate in the coaching shift um, are ones that are really important for life in general and and have broad applicability um, beyond just the workplace. And so I kind of threw you a curveball there by throwing you a, a, a quote at you from your own book um, and kind of starting at the end, right? But I think it's important for us to think about perhaps the impact of coaching and and get our listeners uh, kind of thinking about that. But why don't we reel it back now a little bit and um, let's start off with uh, you know some definitional work, right? Let's, let's see well, what what the heck are we talking about when we even talk about coaching? Um, what is it? What how how do you guys define coaching and how do, maybe do you differentiate it from other related activities? Shana, I'll start and then you you correct me. Um... In the book, we talk about coaching as uh, a practice that you can use, a set of skills, a mindset that you can adopt. Coaching also um, <clears throat> is a noun. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a job. It's a formal role. It's a formal relationship that you might have with someone. But for the purposes of the book, we really focus on it as um, a set of skills that you can use in how you communicate and engage with other people. 
Shauna and I like to think about coaching as one approach on a whole continuum of approaches that we all have when it comes to how we communicate and interact with others. Uh, If on the one end of that continuum is directive behaviors, things like telling, advising, instructing, even giving feedback, coaching is on the other end of that continuum of non-directive behaviors, where we are asking questions, really listening, holding up the mirror to other people. We're pulling information and ideas out of the other person as opposed to pushing our own ideas and information on them. Shauna, what would you add to that? I think that's a, a great description. Like the TLDR on that ends up being like, yes, coaching is a noun. We focus on coaching as a verb, as a practice that you can engage in. It fits in a whole range of behaviors that we see as a toolkit. And and really what we're trying to influence the world to do is we feel like most of the world's pretty good at the telling, the asserting, the, you know, assuming all of that jumping in, providing advice, guidance, teaching, and, you know, more traditional constructs of that. And what we're saying is like, let's build the other side. Let's build the muscle. Let's further develop that because it, it, you know, in today's world is not coming as naturally to people. It hasn't been modeled for us in, you know, decades of hierarchical top-down sort of structures and reinforcements. And so just that practice around getting curious creating space. Like you might even notice throughout this conversation, like Brody and I tend to, Ben, if you ask a question, we're going to sit back first and and kind of be looking at each other for cues because like just in coaching, you're using coaching skills, you're getting more comfortable with silence, pause. Um, And that's just not the world we're in. We're all rushing around. We were talking about the the holiday season, right? And and just running around. That's, um, we tend to not be comfortable with leaving space. And so, uh, you know, taking a coaching approach is a more spacious feeling um, of, of, and way of going throughout the world and through interactions with others. Yeah. And that's, that's awesome. All right. So we've got some healthy definitional work, but like maybe we take it to, you know, some misconceptions about coaching and, or maybe what is coaching not? I love this question. This is one of my favorites. I wish I had a dollar for every time someone said that person needs some coaching when what they really mean is that person needs it talking to (laughs) not coaching at all. (laughs) I actually, I do a lot of work on the topic of feedback also. And I found in my work that people often misuse the word coaching when they really mean feedback. Like this person needs some feedback. Well, I, I really need to give this person needs some coaching, but what I'm, what I really mean is this person needs some feedback. So a lot of people have this misconception that coaching is telling or advising or mentoring. Even, um, I would say 50% of my conversations, people misuse the term coaching as something that's actually a more directive behavior. Yeah. I also think it sometimes gets used as, um, you know, what's a more palatable framing for punishment or a talking to or accountability in some way. Um, uh, but yes, there's stuff. And, and sometimes it refers to like management or supervision in a way that's not intended either. Um, so, but I, I think the other thing is that when we're talking to really, you know, folks who are coming from more traditional mindsets, on the opposite side, it can be thought of as very soft. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that you're almost not 
holding someone accountable, uh, accountable, where actually there's a ton of accountability built into coaching done well. Um, and so I think that there can sometimes it can flag for people that like, uh, like that's the squishy stuff that actually we don't want to introduce into our workplace um, or, you know, home lives even or, or uh, people interpreting it as too close to therapy. So again, like as, as Brody and I said, we see coaching on a continuum. It fits in with all of these things. There's a lot of different kinds of helping relationships, for example, that are close cousins, but different. So I think that's where a lot of the misconceptions come in, um, that not understanding those distinctions. So, so you talk about, you just mentioned versus therapy, right? And I think that's an interesting thing because what's funny to me and I didn't know what IO psych was until much later in my life. And then the obvious, like, uninitiated question is like, well, why do why don't industrial and organizational psychologists do therapy for orgs? Right? You have all these different interventions and that kind of stuff. But could you contrast coaching with therapy? Because I feel like there's got to be some overlap there. Sean, I feel like you always answer this one better when it comes up in class. You want to take this one? Because <laughs> it always does. Yeah, well, <clears throat> there are a lot of commonalities, especially I think if you look at just like the toolkits that that people are using, there's a lot of questions in both, for example, right? And particularly for evidence-based coaching, which is the um, the style of coaching that Brody and I come out of. There's a lot of commonality in terms of the theories and the psychological underpinnings of both. Um, what tends to be different is that really it's about 5% of the population that truly needs, you know, is, is in clinical need of something like therapy. Um, lots of therapists spend time in kind of non-clinical topics and, and issues. And similarly, coaches will encounter people who have clinical issues and will refer out to a clinician. So that's where the boundaries get, get um, a little bit blurry. But when I think about like, where is coaching and how is it differentiated from therapy? A lot of it is like coaching is very much like, where are you today? Where do you want to be tomorrow? What's that gap? And let's like, you know, help you build some structures, some um, goals, some planning, some tools for like, how do we close that gap for you? So it's very forward looking in nature. And it's not to say that therapy is always backward looking, but I think if you were to look at kind of the time pie, as, as we would call it, um, and where is where are the proportions, the proportions are much um, higher in coaching for being forward looking. It's a very generative kind of positive psychology oriented process. Um, therapy often, like you're really, you know, having to dig into like, where, where are the origins? Where do these stories come from that aren't serving us? Like what's holding me back from getting to the forward looking place in my own personal experience, when I've worked with a coach and a therapist at the same time, the, what came up for me in terms of the actual distinction was that like coaching would shine the light on sort of where an unresolved issue was or something that I needed to do like even deeper work to, to unpack would be, but it didn't go into it in and of itself. That was what I took to therapy. So I actually found that marriage between the two to be really helpful, but you're kind of operating at different planes. Whereas, you know, 
for most coaching, the idea is taking someone from like good to great or languishing to flourishing Mm. or, you know, things like that. You know, you mentioned that your area of coaching that you're interested in is evidence-based coaching. And that's certainly a a phrase that would resonate with, with Chris and I, and I think with, uh, with most of our listeners. Um, So, but it also implies that there's non-evidence-based coaching. And I'm curious to know, what does that look like and uh, and how does it differ from evidence-based coaching? That, that one probably gets censored. I, Brody, what, how would you approach the, uh, <laughs> what, what does it look like, especially? I love the visual. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just throw it out there that I think there's a lot of snake oil in the, in the whole coaching world. Yeah. Right. That's being sold. Does one have a yoga mat and the other one not? <laughs> that, and what's it look like? One. Do you guys use incense in your evidence-based coaching? <laughs> uh, or, or essential oils? <laughs> well, I I think you, you're saying there's a lot of snake oils, a very direct... I was going to say, there are, there are a lot of different forms of coaching out there in the world. And I think one of Yeah, the, but some are garbage, right? Well, perhaps less evidence-based. Uh, there, You know, I think one of the challenges is with this... There, there are a few challenges with the coaching industry. One is... Um, you know, like the organizations like the International mm-hmm. Coach Federation have done a lot of work in recent years to create more credibility and consistency for the field. And uh, credentialing has has really caught on. A lot of organizations will only hire uh, credentialed coaches. Um, but there's nothing stopping anyone from just going out and printing business cards that say right. they're a coach, right? And who knows? Who knows what they're doing behind closed doors? Um that's not to say that the only good coaches come from a certain background. I have worked with coaches who don't have a background in psychology or human behavior, and it's a second career for them, and their experiences in finance or something, engineering, something completely different, and they're incredibly skilled coaches. And they can learn to be evidence-based and use practices and techniques that have been demonstrated to have impact. Um so I think to bottom line that the challenge is it's it's kind of the wild west. Like anybody out there can call themselves a coach. I think one of the most important things is that a someone who's a buyer, whether it's a client or an organization, does their due diligence to understand what kind of training and background and uh, philosophical approach is this person bringing to their practice. Um, for the longest time, the practice of coaching was so far ahead of any research. I wrote my dissertation on coaching and at that time, which was almost 20 years ago, there was hardly any uh, research on coaching. Uh, And that has changed dramatically. We know so much more now, both from academic research and also organizations doing research like Better Up, where Shauna works. We know so much more about the practices that actually make an impact in coaching. Um, And so now what we need is coaches to stay up to speed on those practices and actually implement them into their coaching work. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Brody's right. We know so much more today than, than we used to. And I would add, we still have so much to learn. Um, you know, I, I have a bias here, as Brody said, I work at BetterUp, which is, um, a technology company that offers coaching at scale. And, and I think the intersection of technology with coaching, which has really accelerated post pandemic opens up a whole new world of research uh, that we can do on this. Because if you think about the nature of coaching um, as an intervention, it's one-on-one, right? It's very bespoke. It was traditionally, you know, you meet up in an office or in a coffee shop or, or things like that. 
to Brody's point, who knows what people are doing in these sessions? It may be great, or it could be, you know, something that would make each of us fall out of our chairs. And, and there was just no way to know, or even to say, like, can we really tell with any kind of certainty, you know, if those two coaches are, are engaging in some activity, which one is going to have better outcomes? And what does that even mean? Like, wh- what does better mean, uh, you know, in terms of your original, where you started then? Um, and now we have the ability to have some standardization of assessments. We know more about the people who are getting coached. We know more about the coaches. We know more about what they're doing in those sessions. We can compare people from different training backgrounds and different geographies, different session lengths. Um, you know, there's just a, a, a whole host of things that are going on now that just allow us to learn more. And I think from mine and Brody's perspective, Again, like we, I think would, neither of us would disagree that someone who does not come from an evidence-based background, they can still be a great coach. And if I only have a dollar and I have to place my bet on, you know, which one is going to be more likely to get out, you know, good outcomes, I would place it on the evidence-based coach because they're drawing from a rich history that's saying like, based on the best available evidence, these are the things that we know are going to most commonly get a positive outcome. So that that's sort of where we land on that. But that doesn't that's not to say there aren't other ways of knowing. One of the things I want to throw out there is, right, let's think about licensed therapists. They go through a grinder. Maybe they get their Ph.D. if they want to be listed higher on the Psychology Today listing or something. And they have to have observed time in a therapy setting. And they have to get, and it's still a mixed bag, right? Theoretically, they've designed the best kind of pathway to, I can go talk to people about mental health and therapists are still a mixed bag. So it sounds to me like there's a lot of that with coaching, right? If you're going to place your bet. Yeah. So, so one way perhaps to learn about evidence-based coaching, this is, I'm, I'm perhaps offering you some feedback here, Sean and Brody. You could say one way to uh, to learn more about evidence-based coaching is to go buy our book, right? So, <laughs> so you have a book and it comes from an evidence-based approach, which is why Chris and I read it. We thought it was something worth talking about with both of you. And you titled the book, The Coaching Shift. Uh, why that title? What's um, kind of what's the overarching theme and, and uh, uh, direction of, of your thoughts there? There's so many ways that we could answer this question. Yeah. Yeah. We won't go into the rabbit hole on naming the book, but we'll, we'll stick to a different way of answering the question. But yeah, I mean, I think some of it comes back to, as Brody described, the continuum of these skills. And, you know, we do not think it's effective to spend all of your time, 100% of your time throughout your entire life, like just in coaching skills, like just showing up as a coach. Um, just as we think it's a terrible idea to show up all the time, you know, barking orders or advice at everybody all the time. I think the, you know, the, the opportunity is really in learning to sense, like, what does this situation require demand and having the fluency and the, the capability to move between these skills. Um, and so for us, it's like, well, like I said, we're already really good at giving advice, a little less time over there and just shifting a little bit more mm. into a more curious, open, non-judgmental approach. Um, 
and we think that just that shift, like, you know, behavior changes, a lot of talk about like uh, 2% turns uh, and things like that. It doesn't have to be massive and you can still create a, a incredible ripple effect throughout your own life and the lives of, of people around you. Shauna, I just want to build on something that you said, which is that it's, it's not only a shift in the behavior and the approach that you choose to use and shifting to using more of that continuum. It's also a mindset shift, a mindset shift that you don't always have the answer. You probably don't have the answer for the other person, even though you think you do a shift out of judgment and into curiosity so I think it's two two layers. It's the shift in the mindset that you choose to adopt and then a shift in how you're spending your time in terms of behaviors and how you're engaging with people. I, I would love to hear if you all have seen this, but you know, and what I'm hearing from people post-pandemic is that the world was already starting to necessitate this shift in just how people were showing up in the world. Um, as Brody said, this this phenomenon of not having the answers. We've probably never had the answers, but we certainly don't have them now where the world's changing so fast. There's so much uncertainty. There's just a lot of ambiguity out there. And, um, you know, the, the idea that, for example, like command and control will work, uh, in that kind of environment is, is just really challenging. And so what I'm hearing is that people are really grappling with like, how, how do I manage in a world where I don't have the answers? Um, yeah, so well, that's really interesting. And, um, you know, I think that COVID or not or or whatever, in times of turbulence, when things are moving quickly, thinking that you have the answers all the time is not going to be helpful, right? And so I don't know if that's something that has changed in recent years or not. It feels like things are faster now, but you could ask somebody a long time ago and they'd probably say the same thing, right? Oh, things are really fast. Now. But, um, you know, I think there's there's some value in this idea of of broadening the spectrum of behaviors that I engage in when I'm trying to work together with other people uh, and including this curious, open-minded, coach-like type of um, set of behaviors into my my repertoire. And, you know, you organize this book kind of in, a, in an interesting way where you, you have it in three parts where you start with, um, it's just called you, right? So it's, a, it's talking about you, then talking about your coaching skills, and then your coaching impact. Uh, I wonder if you could unpack a little bit of why you ordered the book in that way. Great question. Yeah. People who read the book might be surprised that we don't actually talk about any coaching skills until chapter four. <laughs> um, we, ha- we have a pretty strong belief and I think a lot of uh, like coaching programs are built around the same belief that it's very hard to be present for others and adopt some of these mindsets until you've done a little bit of self-work. I, I know this metaphor is overused, but it's sort of like putting on your own oxygen mask first. And so the first portion of the book is dedicated to helping the reader understand how their brain works, thoughts, emotions, attitudes, beliefs how goals shape our behavior or drive our behavior. Um, All so that we can understand what's going on with ourselves, what's driving some of our reactions and responses and how we show up with other people so that we can choose perhaps a different way of showing up. Uh, We can realize that we can choose the mindset that we bring to a conversation. Because I think without that foundation, it's really hard to implement some of the skills that we introduce in the second part of the book. Sure. So while we talk about some of those 
things in part one, talking about you and some of the self-work that's involved. And you really position coaching and just general human interaction as being interrelated. I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about why that's the case and why it's important to be thinking about if we're trying to coach other people. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, as I was going back through back through the book in, in recent weeks, I was noticing that we talk multiple times about just human nature, you know, how, how we evolved as a species and just how um, socially, like we're, we're a very social species. Like for us, survival was so dependent on each other because we weren't as fast as, as the lion or as strong as the bear or, you know, things like that. And so we really had to depend on each other um, for survival as the, uh, the weaker ape, I guess, it, it, as it were. And so the idea of being excluded from a group was a threat to existence. And so this like natural drive for human connection is really core, um, to, you know, our survival and our, our hard wiring in terms of like, when do we feel safe? When do we feel threatened? Um, and so when we talk about like a coaching mindset and this like showing up curious, open, non-judgmental, like that's really biologically linked to like our ability to feel safe and be vulnerable. And, you know, through that state, you can be much more generative and, and open to feedback as, you know, Brody was talking about feedback earlier be open to feedback, but also like generating ideas, both for yourself or, you know, for the world around you. And so, you know, we see this idea of, of coaching and showing up more coach-like as a critical foundation to even things like, you know, being able to foster belonging and inclusion and innovation and, and things like that. So um, I think that's where coaching is just connected to things that are critical for just like um, basic functioning, whether it's in a family system or, or at work or in the world more broadly. Yeah. Do you guys find yourself coaching members of your family <laughs> or is that more directive feedback? <laughs> we only seek permission to coach. I, I don't know, Brittany, you're, uh, I'm curious how Tim would answer that question, but I, I, I'm, I will definitely talk about, um, parenting pre-coach training and yes, parenting post-coach training. Yeah, there's no, there's a huge, a huge aspect of that is just like, you know, especially the awareness of mindset and how like when you're when your child does something that annoys you when you're in a bad mood versus a good mood and how the rest of that conversation goes, like just things like that and and. um the notion of inserting a pause and giving yourself a timeout instead of them. And like all of these things, I think, whether it's coaching in terms of, you know, facilitating a, a goal oriented process for them or coaching just in terms of the mindset and like awareness for uh, putting on my own oxygen mask <laughs> before trying to help someone else for sure. I can, I can admit it. It is, it is funny how the, how these, I don't know, I was going to say how these skills kind of like leak out into your life, but I mean, they also are very helpful sometimes. I, I think you mentioned Tim, Tim is my partner. And uh, years ago, he turned it around on me. And apparently, I would ask him the question, how do you feel about that all the time, which is such a cliche. And 
I would say, how do you feel about that? And he would say, well, how do you feel about that? And just start turning around on me all the time. He actually found a shirt once somewhere that said, how do you feel about that? Uh, and, but then another one is, I, I think the, when I think about like my coach training and the, the like aha moments that I had when I went through my coach training, the biggest one was probably around listening and both my own listening to other people, but also other people listening to me. And once you realize what it looks like and feels like to really listen and to really mm -hmm. be listened to, you can't unknow. And we actually see this transformation with our students a lot where one, we talk about um, three levels of listening. We talk about it in the book. We talk about it in the class that we teach. And basically, level one listening is when you listen to someone else with yourself in mind. And so that might be uh, you say something and then I respond with something about myself. But it can also be highly um, useful. So if you're uh, telling me instructions for something that I need to go do, it's really important that I'm listening to understand my role, right? So level one listening is not always bad. But when you start to uh, experience listening at a deeper level when people are really seeking to understand you and empathize you, empathize with you, and you feel like they're seeing you as a whole person, uh, and you see what that feels like, it's really hard when then you're in situations and people are clearly half listening or listening and then responding about themselves. So that's the challenge with it is once you know, you can't unknow. Uh, and Shauna, I don't know about you, but when I was doing my coach training, I tried to listen at level three everywhere I went, I'd be like checking out at the grocery store and having like a deep conversation with the checkout person. And that's, you have to learn like where to draw your boundaries. Right. And Shauna mentioned earlier asking for permission to coach. I think once you're learning these skills, it's also really tempting to always slip into this mode and sort of over-index on this new skill set that you're developing. And that can sometimes feel intrusive to other people. So you want to use this, this mindset of being curious and open, asking questions, listening. But this is where the skill of noticing is also very important because if you notice a reaction from the other person that they're uncomfortable with all the questions that you're asking, then maybe you need to shift a little out of coach mode. Sure. Well, first of all, Shauna, I'm very sorry to hear that your children sometimes annoy you. My children never do that to me. Um, <laughs> never so I, I'm, I'm sorry yeah. to hear that. But um, <laughs> so I, I love your, your points about listening. Uh, I'm sure you are evaluating the listening quality and skills that, that Chris and I perhaps have in this podcast conversation. Um, what else is there in that, that you would characterize in this bucket of things you call the coaching mindset? Well, first of all, I want to comment on your listening and your question asking. Two critical skills for uh, bringing a coaching approach. You both do both great. You're great listeners. It's very clear that you're paying attention. You ask great follow-up questions. You ask great open-ended questions to begin with, so you're. Uh, oh man, you got to figure it figured out already. Glad we glad we passed. Hopefully, you're just being curious and open and not judgmental. I, well, I am genuinely curious. So as we're speaking, <laughs> <laughs> that helps. That's the cool thing about having a podcast. We get to invite people we think are cool and then ask them whatever we want. Right, right. We don't. We don't. In, <laughs> and see, the thing is, we don't invite people on our podcast who you know we don't think are going to you know have interesting things to say. So it's very easy. <laughs> All right. So I, I want to take over here a little bit with some questions. Watch so, out. Self-work, self right? All this stuff. You don't just show up like, oh, look, I was just born empathetic. What can I say? Maybe some people, right? But it sounds like there's some self-work. And if somebody says like, hey, I, I buy into what you're saying. I think the world really would be better. Where would you start that journey of self-work 
to set you up for being a coach? Mm. Great question. I'm watching the lights go off in Brody's head for <laughs> people who can't see us. And this is why I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to, about how. All right. I, I have two things to start. I mean, there's so many different, there's so many, it's a choose your own adventure novel. There are many places where you could jump in. I think the two, if you're going to do two things, the first one is learning a little bit more about how your brain works. And the second one is doing some data collection of yourself. <laughs> I, would, I, I was thinking the same thing. So it was uh, the basic psychological principles and self-observation. Mm. Yeah. So which one do you want to talk about? Let's each oh, take no. one. Oh, no, you, you start. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm like <laughs> geeking out right now on the reliability right now. The... <laughs> Uh, okay, so let's start with brain. Um, I have found that simply understanding how your brain is wired and how certain things works can be a huge aha moment for people. And I'll, just, I'll give you some examples. One way in which we're failing at evolution is that our brain responds in the same way to a real versus an imagined threat. So you, you guys know what the amygdala is, right? It's a fear, fear center in your brain, threat, threat detection center. Uh, if you're hiking on the Appalachian Trail and you see a bear, your amygdala lights up with activity. If you're going into your performance review and you get negative feedback from your boss, your brain reacts in the exact same way, which is completely ridiculous. So I really hope this is the next step of human evolution. Now, the problem is when that amygdala activity flares up, you're flooded with emotion. It's really hard to think clearly and rationally. So especially if you're in a situation where you feel th an ego threat, you feel uncomfortable, you're getting tough feedback, you had an uncomfortable interaction with someone, it's very hard in that moment to think clearly and rationally and behave in, a, in the way that you want to. Also, if you become self-conscious at all and a lot of your attention is directed inward, that's going to interfere with your uh, ability to show up the way that you want to. And so just recognizing that time is one of your best friends, taking a few deep breaths, waiting a few beats. This is why we say count to 10 when you're angry can allow time for that emotion to cool off for rational cognition to catch up. And then for you to choose a better way to respond. I think that's exactly right. I think the layer I would add to that is just the, the notion of constructed reality. Like all of that is happening and we are in our own little movie and it may or may not be the truth quote unquote right like that there's a lot of different versions of the truth and you can with that pause you can choose a version that gets you the outcome you want um and and so that is <clears throat> i think the one thing that when i think about like the the lights going off for people especially as we teach this material in class that's a lot of what it's about is just like that sudden, like getting outside of yourself enough to realize that your story is not the story. Um, and, you know, the small anecdotes like this, like, for example, in class, we show this little animated video of what happens when, you know, you're in a parking lot, getting ready to pull into a parking space and somebody else comes in and pulls in and you're immediately, you know, amygdala hijack as as Brody's describing shaking your fist shouting things out at them and 
you know, you're making some assumptions that that person is a jerk and, you know, they, they clearly saw you there and pulled in anyways and all of that. Um, and how would the story look different if then the person comes over and apologizes and says they're, they're, you know, partners in labor or something like that. And then suddenly, you know, everything melts away and you have a totally different view of the story. And so it's just this idea that like when we become aware, when we notice that we're in these hijacked states, we can pause and, you know, whether it's true or not, like choose something that leads to positive emotions versus negative emotions or things like that. So I th- I do think that is like probably the single most powerful thing that all comes from just understanding how your brain works. Yeah. So then move to the, that's great. So then understanding the brain and then you talked about some data collection and, and, and observation. What might that look like? One of my favorite homework assignments to give a coaching client, it sounds so simple and basic, but it's so powerful is simply noticing and observing yourself. And like Shauna said, collecting some data on yourself. So this could be, um, you know, I tend to have really strong reactions and I have blow ups in certain work meetings. Okay. Well, you, your homework assignment is to notice yourself in that situation, see what data you can pick up about what is it that triggers you? How do you tend to react? How do you feel afterward? So it's really just paying closer attention to yourself and becoming more mindful and aware of your triggers, your patterns, your habits, your reactions, your feelings, your thoughts. Um, It's truly just data collection on yourself so that you can better understand what's going on, which will then allow you to choose different things later. It's kind of like laying a foundation. What I love about this is this isn't magic. You're not ordained. There's real things you can do in for yourself and by proxy for the world. And that just gets me pumped. I got I get so pumped about that. There's a real set of skills and stuff you can do. You're not hopeless, set adrift, a victim to your own person. But then when it comes to coaching, there's also, right? There is no magic. You make your own magic, right? There's a real set of skills, concrete skills and set of expertise and a skill set for coaching. What are some of those when we're talking about coaching skills? Yeah, well, I'll I'll take that and combine it a little bit with the previous question around what can you do? So Brody's talked a lot about, you know, listening, asking questions, things like that, two really foundational coaching skills. And a way to get started on things like that, my, one of my favorite self-observation exercises to engage in is just ask people to one week, you can even do it one day, observe yourself asking questions. Keep a little notebook and just tally. When am I asking versus when am I telling? And what's different about these situations? Um, and that can be super instructive for figuring out like what gets in the way for you about being curious or what are the conditions under which there's something going on that triggers that like, you know, we, Michael Bungay Stanier, someone who we like a lot, um, he would call it like the advice trap where all of a sudden you're, you're back into telling mode. Um, I did that once in, when I was going through coach training and it was fascinating. I was like, Oh, I'm actually really good at asking questions with my, you know, with my family, with my partner, with kids, with, colleagues outside of meetings. And then I would get into like, 
our meeting with our lawyers. And all of a sudden I'm like the total, I'm not one single question in, in those meetings. And so like, really that starts to be a place where you can start to do some digging for what are the things that you want to shift and, and, um, practice that the same thing can be true for listening, right? Like when, when are, what are the circumstances under which I'm catching myself, like thinking about my answer before I'm, you know, instead of really listening to and observing what the other person's saying. So we've talked a lot about asking questions. It seems like asking powerful questions is a key part of, of coaching and this whole coaching mindset. Yeah. Asking questions uh, is really important for a few reasons. One um, you know, you're as a coach, there's sort of a core assumption that the answers are inside the other person. Your job is to help pull them out. And one of the best ways to do that is through asking questions. And so by asking great questions, typically open-ended questions, what, how, tell me more, I'm curious about, you are being a thought partner to the other person and helping them think through the situation or the challenge or whatever it is that you're talking about. You're helping them formulate and pull out the thoughts and ideas that they have about it. You're using it as a way to support the other person, but it's also a tool. It's a tool to help them become more self-aware. It's a tool for discovery. It can even be a tool for accountability. Like, what do you want to do about this? How are you going to know that you've made progress? Uh, how do you want to follow up on this? What would success look like? So questions can serve so many different purposes depending on the nature of the question and how it's framed and what your intention is at the coach as a coach and also how it lands with the other person. So you mentioned that there's essential to this entire approach is that the answer or is this assumption perhaps that there's an answer that the the person who's being coached has already within them. Maybe they are just trying to uncover it and your your job is to help them kind of come up with that or, or uh, discover it on their own through asking these types of questions and being a thought partner. Um, are there situations in which they don't have the answer? Yes. The situations in which somebody doesn't have the answer are usually not the ones we're talking about. Mm. <laughs> I feel like most of the time they have the answer. But like, for example, say you've got um, one of your children right? And, and they're asking you a question that like they genuinely new to the world have never experienced this or literally don't know how to do something and you know how to do it. And yeah, there's some benefit to, you know, just letting them experiment and try and everything like that. But say it's high stakes. It's about, you know, something safety related or like, just tell them, right? Show them, demonstrate it, like give them the answer. Don't torture someone to just keep saying, well, how, what do you think the answer? Like, how would you, how might you do? There's certainly cases like that, but I think that particularly for anything where it's about them, um, they have the answer and yeah. And, and so like really the, the gift is providing the space for them to explore, to tinker, um, and, and to be listened to without judgment. I don't know. Really? Let me let me ask some questions about that. <laughs> All right. And maybe maybe we'll caveat it a bit. But I, you know, if you don't have if you don't know how your brain works, it's going to be really hard to not get if you don't even know the word flooded. Right. It's going to be hard to manage that. Like that's a concrete piece of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. what is that quote? If I've seen a little further, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. Right. And so 
like when we're talking about those, it just feels like you can coach a skill that then you could maybe coach those higher level pieces of functioning versus just, right? There's surely more in the coach's toolkit than just, you feel helpless, tell me about it, or something like that, right? <laughs> Chris, I, yes, I, and I think this, um, so th- I think this also highlights the importance of being able to use that full range of behaviors. So sometimes if you're in a coaching conversation, you might not only ask questions, right? You might also share a perspective. Uh, I think the key distinction is when you're coaching someone, they have autonomy and they're empowered to decide what they want to do with it. So if someone says, I have no idea what the amygdala is, as a coach, you're not going to say, well, what do you think the amygdala is? Like, that's not really, that's not helpful, right? So you might say, okay, this is what the amygdala is. So you might, you might explain something. You might share some outside perspective or experience that you've had. One thing that I, I do sometimes with my clients, I like to call it presenting options on a silver platter. So if they're spinning and they're trying to figure out what to do to solve a problem or a path forward, I'm never going to tell them what to do um, because that might not be what they want, right? It might not be the right solution for them, even though it sounds good to me. But I might say, I've seen a similar situation with several other clients. Here are some things I've seen people try. So I might offer some uh, food for thought or plant some seeds, but then ultimately it's up to that other person to decide what they want to do with it. And one of the things that we often do in, um, when you're kind of wearing your coaching hat on that is, is also ask someone if it would be helpful to mm-hmm. share an mm. idea or, or share. Because again, I think as Brody said, the, the idea with coaching is that the other person has agency control over their, their life, their choices and what they're doing with it. Um, and this is different, I think, than where, for example, something like mentoring, where the premise of mentoring is somebody else has been, you know, through that journey, Chris, that you're talking about. And and you're really saying, like, I want to learn from what you did in the hopes that that too will work for me. Um, and in coaching, you know, certainly there's moments where you can bring that in. But really, the idea is that your path, the path you're walking is not the one that I walked. And so the answers may or may not work for you. So let's figure out what what's going to work for you. What? Well, and Shauna, to your point about mentoring, um, this is, that's an, I think that's another interesting example of where you could bring in your coaching skill set as an asset. Same with a feedback conversation. So if I'm a mentor, I might say, this is what I did. This is what I learned. Here's my experience. And then follow it with a coaching question. How do you think this applies to your situation, Shauna? Uh, if you had been in my shoes, what, what would you have done about it? So this is why I love talking about coaching as a skill as opposed to just one clean and neat practice because you can weave it into all these other approaches. You're having a feedback conversation. I give you some feedback on something that I observed and I say, how can I support you going forward? Or what would you rather do next time? And you're actually using a coaching approach in a feedback conversation. They don't don't have to stay in their silos. So this has been a really good conversation about some different coaching skills and kind of building on that coaching mindset. Um, I'm curious now to to explore a little bit about what it might look like for someone who's saying, okay, this sounds great. Maybe I don't want to be a coach, but maybe I want a coach for myself. Um, You know, what guidance might you offer that person? Uh, And I'm, Things that are going through my mind are, you know, does certification matter? How do you pick a coach for yourself? 
What are maybe some red flags of a bad coach, green flags of a good coach? What are your thoughts there? Great questions. And I would say I personally believe the world would be a much better place if every one had a coach or a therapist or both. <laughs> we all need somebody objective who can listen to us. You know, it doesn't have to be your partner or your mom or your best friend or whomever else you talk to. Um, you know, so much, my, my dissertation was actually on the coaching relationship and how important basically the dynamic and the relationship between the coach and the client is for, for coaching to be successful. And Sean, I know you guys have data on this from better up too. And so I think one of the most important things is talking to a few coaches and not only understanding their credentials and their experience and their approach, but also just noticing how you feel when you talk to them. And what does the dynamic feel like? Is that someone you would feel comfortable talking to? Do you think it's someone who you could build a trust-based relationship with? Uh, Chana, you might have data that's like totally to the contrary of that. Um, no, that's that's still absolutely true. Yeah, we still find the best predictor of outcomes is that relationship, the connection between the, the coach and the coachee. Um, and so, you know, it's it's one of these things, and you've probably all experienced it, even if it's with like, going to a doctor or dentist where like the first time you're like, eh, I don't know, like I'm not excited about seeing them again, but I, I'll give it another shot. Like you don't have to do that in coaching. <laughs> Coach, Coaching in general as an approach can take a little bit to get used to, but if you're not like really feeling the connection, you feel like the person gets you and you're excited to talk to them again, talk to someone else, you know, and we similarly, I think Brody and I both always recommend that people talk to at least three people just get a sense um, for it. So that's really important. And then I think the other thing is like stylistically there, there are differences like me for myself. Like I like a coach who is going to really like hold me accountable, right? Cause I'll get away with anything you let me get away with. And I know that about myself. <laughs> so like I need someone with a little bit more of a strong style for, for other people. Like they want someone who is going to feel like a warm hug and, you know, just be very exploratory and listen. Right. So it's different strokes for, for different folks. And I think just whatever you know about yourself, like ask questions around that. And then there's a bunch of practical things. Like what does the engagement look like? Do you prefer to be in person versus on the phone versus video? And like, does that work for someone? What kind of length of engagement? There's a lot of like practical things to consider. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there's a lot of kind of fit things and style things that you'd want to explore uh, that could give you some indications of whether or not that coach is going to work out for you. Um, are there any things that would be like really big red flags that you would say like, oh my gosh, run away as fast as I can find, you know, any other coach aside from this person to, uh, to engage with. Yeah. I think if you have an initial conversation with a coach and they are trying to tell you what to do or give you advice or direction or think they know better or just want to sound smart, I, I would, I would, not pursue that coach. <laughs> run away, run away. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. I think, yeah, absolutely. If the conversation is more about them than you, then you're probably mm. not in a good spot. Mm. Interesting. Awesome. Did I tell you how awesome I am, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now pay me $200 an hour. No. <laughs> let me, let me dive into this. So yeah, we touched on it a little bit, but this is an idea about, because some of coaching and a lot of this stuff, like our when we're really empathizing, when we're asking that question, as we're trying to engage in this kind of 
theory of the mind practice. Like I can look at you and I can guess maybe what you're thinking, but I can't, right? Now, one of the things about Hmm. sociopaths is they really make, they pull those strings so good, but nobody can really know what the other person's thinking, but they may engage in behaviors that make you feel good about yourself. And it's just like a soothsayer, as it were, right? And But when we engage in this kind of sense-making process, we're using our words and communicating to try to get a lens into each other's mind on something, right? I know this is a big setup, but stick with me. So some of coaching, I feel like it can derail into this kind of place where you're not really getting somewhere. Coaching should have an outcome other than the equivalent of a really nice hug. And so there's like some truth elements here. Like one of the things that Ben and I struggle with when we go into a consulting engagement, sometimes the organizations are really sideways. I got it's You're like, whoa, this is a mess, right? But their lens for what is going on is so far from reality, right? That they can't even see a way to get themselves out. Now, I know you mentioned, hey, there has... There has some items of like, hey, you got to do some telling, right? Some of this is kind of that situational leadership model, right? Typical leader member exchange. You, you know, what's your readiness and motivation? You're, di- you're dialing the dials, right? But how do we think existentially about coaching? Like, is this just a social behavior where we perspective take and share Or is there something where we're trying to collectively build on what we know to arrive at a truth or maybe even a higher truth? I love your philosophical question. Um, There are a few nuggets in there that stood out to me. The first one being we want to have an outcome-oriented conversation. That's a really important distinction in a coaching conversation. This is just a chit-chat. We don't want to just sit around and have a philosophical meandering dialogue. We are working toward an outcome. So I think that's an important distinction. Um, another one is this point about truth. And I, I'll be really candid. I think one of the challenges with a coaching conversation is that it can sometimes be biased by the two people who are participating in it. And, you know, coaches will do things like try to hold up the mirror and try to challenge your assumptions and your beliefs and take a different perspective on things and use a lot of different tools to help the other person do that. But you're also sometimes limited by what you do and don't know. And so this is where I think, like, if we're talking about a formal coaching conversation, as as opposed to, like, using your coaching skills, this is why additional data points are so helpful in coaching, like doing a 360 or getting some assessment feedback, because it brings in other data points to the conversation so that hopefully we can work a little bit closer to truth and not just be limited by the information that we both know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, totally. <laughs> so let's, you mentioned outcomes, right? Let's talk about, so, okay, I believe I read your book. I'm going to get a coach. You know, I got the red and green flags. I finally found somebody I vibe with and it's good. What's a conversation about outcomes look like with that coach? How do you do that well? What would be some examples of some good outcomes you might talk about? Or how do you, how should somebody think about that at all? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it can be anything. And in terms of like the kinds of things that coaching can impact, it's crazy. It's, a, it's an incredible range of things. Everything from uh, things like well-being, you know, work-life balance, happiness, 
productivity, you know, so I, I think anything is fair game. Um, what's important in terms of like what a good conversation driving towards outcomes looks like is that there's a clear agreement about what that is. Like, what is it that you want to get out of our time together today? And that you both have that clear and it may shift over time, but as it does, as you go through the conversation, you're checking back in. Like, how's this working for you? Like you said that you wanted to accomplish X and now we're talking about Y, which way do you want to go? So that you're, you're guideposting, you're um, checking in and that you're always going back. You both know where are we trying to get and you're measuring each other on like, are, are we on our way there? Um, and then similarly, as Brody gave an example of before, you know, at the end of a coaching session, you're typically kind of recapping. So like, what are you taking away from this? What do you want to do with this? How can I support you? How do you want to be held accountable? What's going to get in your way? You know, things like that so that there's accountability mechanisms and, and in the next conversation, there's some kind of follow-up as well or whatever you agree to. So one assumption that seems to be undergirding a lot of what we've been talking about is an assumption that the person being coached wants to be coached. And I wonder how you deal with those situations or how you might think about those situations in which someone really, really needs coaching and all the people around this person know that this person needs coaching. That person doesn't really realize it yet. And maybe they hire you to go coach that person or something like that. Well, how do, I mean, I, I guess, how do you think about that? I have so many thoughts coming up, but Brody, I'm like... <laughs> this sounds like a comedy. This sounds like a comedy movie setup. <laughs> I well, my first thing is like, when, when was the last time you tried to teach someone something they thought they already mm. knew? Like every consulting engagement right? ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how did it go? You know, it's been... Well, now I'm thinking about who I would cast in the movie. I'm all so distracted now. <laughs> right? It's a setup of like court, court-ordered coaching. Right. He's going to lose his company <laughs> if he doesn't go through coaching. I'd put Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell in it based on their Christmas movie. I was going to say Will Ferrell. I totally <laughs> agree. With we you. Act- I'd like for Queen Latifah to be the coach. There you go. We, we had a happy hour conversation once that did involve this like sitcom or um, reality TV show called Gorilla Coaching, where you just go into like this would be great in D.C. where everybody starts with like. So what do you, what do you do? And you're like, <laughs> well, what, what matters about that? And you just start like diving into a coaching session from any starting point <laughs> without consent, I think would be a great place to go. But now Brody, cast your movie. What, what's... Well, I do think people would eat that up in DC if you just started pulling that thread uh, in a bar. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm thinking about this question actually from two levels, right? There's the discrete coaching conversation, and then there's like a coaching engagement. And so I think in a discrete coaching conversation, it's a little, it's a little lower risk because you could just kind of dip a toe in and ask a question and see how it lands with the other person. And that's going to give you some indication of whether or not they're in a space where they're ready to have a conversation like that. Um, and you might do some noticing, right? You might say, Ben, I'm noticing that you don't really seem interested in having this conversation right now. Is this a conversation you'd like to have another time? Or is there some other way we should approach this? You know, something like that. In terms of like an overall coaching engagement, 
a, a really important factor in the success of coaching is someone's openness to coaching and whether or not they're ready for coaching. And this is often a struggle when people are told to go to coaching. I've actually had a few clients like that. And you spend a lot of time in the early days just trying to help them understand what coaching is and what you're doing there and what it could do for them. And and that can be frustrating sometimes. You feel like you're spinning your wheels, but ultimately it gets them to a place where they are ready and open. So it's an important sort of upfront investment mm-hmm. to make to help them get to that get to that place. But there is a there's a really important element of choice. People have to want to engage in a conversation like this in order for it to be fruitful. Otherwise, it just feels kind of intrusive. Right. Right. And that's another place where I think, um, you know, when I think about the future of coaching and where things are going, some of the work that better up and and likely others are doing too is really in that space right uh, and some of the more mature um customers at the organizational level that we've talked to will even say you know coaching is a huge investment we want to make sure that somebody's going to get the most out of it that they're actually going to spend the time dedicate and everything um and that's absolutely true and up until now like there's typically two ways people get to coaching they either seek it out for themselves or somebody, a manager, (laughs) someone in their chain tells them that they need to go. So the situation that you're talking about, um, and you obviously get pretty different outcomes, uh, from depending on those paths. So I think where the, the future is, is like, we know that people who are going through some type of transition have see far more benefits from coaching than people who are not. And this is the stats that we have on this is about 40% higher engagement and outcomes related to that. And there's lots of ways that we know that people are going through transition. People get promoted into a different job. They move to another city, another company. Um, They become an expatriate, uh, things like that. They have, they're suddenly a caretaker of either a a child or a parent or, um, you know, all of us in COVID. Uh, so people who are going through transition tend to be really open to development. And so in the future, you can see a world where there's lots of sensors that tell us when people are going through change and we can introduce things like coaching in those cases. And for people who aren't in that state of readiness, as Brody's talking about some of these tools, like 360s, like how do we take someone along a journey to where we are not just intervening once they are ready, but we're really helping them progress down that path. So, Sure, sure. That's all great. So we've talked about this kind of inward focus, getting doing your self-work, thinking about the coaching mindset. We've talked about some coaching skills. I'd like to kind of start bringing this uh, plane in for a landing a little bit since we're time flies and you're having fun here um, and talking a little bit about your coaching impact. And um, you know, one thing I'm thinking about is a very practical situation in terms of how you might scale a coaching culture throughout a large organization. And I'm asking this super selfishly um, from my experience in the United States Navy um, working on the talent management task force. One thing that we're trying to um, really advocate for and institutionalize is something called My Navy Coaching, um, in which we're uh, positioning coaching really as a communication and leadership skill. Um, to help all sailors be more coach-like and doing so using active listening, empathy, and asking powerful questions. Um, But our challenge is how do you, in an organization of, if you consider active duty and reservists, um, 400,000 people, 
how do you institutionalize and scale um, these types of behaviors and this whole idea of, of um, and the value, I guess, of coaching skills? Any thoughts on that? Wow. First of all, that is awesome and sounds like a big undertaking. So good for you for tackling that. Um, there, there's some interesting work on coaching culture and uh, sort of defining what that means for your organization and looking at all the different pieces that connect to it. And what I mean by that is uh, what is your aspiration for what you want the end state to be? Uh you know, is it something that you just want everyone to develop this level of skill? Or do you want to be really strategic about how you're using formal coaching, like executive coaches or internal executive coaches in your organization? Um, Sean and I in the book talk about two things that are relevant here. One is sort of a five-step process that you can use to um, assess your coaching culture and deliberately uh, basically come up with a strategy for how you want to tackle it. And then we also talk about a maturity model that. Um, kind of maps out different places where organizations can be in terms of their coaching practices. Um, and without going into too much detail on those two things, I think in your instance, it's a question of sort of defining the desired end state, doing some assessment to understand where we are today, and first figuring out what is the gap that we need to close. And then that's going to feed into, okay, well, what are the steps that you need to take to do that? It could be something like rolling out a large-scale training on basic coaching skills for everyone. It's things like um, having real change agents, like making sure leadership is visibly role modeling coaching skills and talking about it and sort of driving some top-down change. It's also things like infusing coaching philosophy and practices into other um, processes and practices. So in, for example, a lot of organizations have great aspirations and put a lot of effort into creating a coaching culture and then their performance management process completely guts it because it's so focused on evaluation and judgment. And so making sure that you're being consistent in your other people practices and processes uh, to drive to the same destination where you're trying to go. I agree with all of that, Brody. I think it's perfect. Um, and similarly in that assessment, just like we talk about formal policies and practices, whatever, norms are the other thing. I think, mm -hmm. you know, people are looking at like what's getting recognized and rewarded. And so if you're trying to train your entire workforce on coaching skills, but really the, the leaders who are getting awards and things like that are your most, most directive, loudest voices in the room um, kind of style, it's going to, to have an impact on like the adoption of, of all the other things you're doing. So really just trying to take, um, you know, that outside perspective and say like, what's going on here that can be getting in our way that may be, you know, sort of insidiously like uh, undermining our efforts. So great. All right. Well, let's bring this thing in for a close. I'm, I'm going to ask you, we wrap up every episode generally with this, like, hey, what are the top implications for an individual? If you're somebody just within an organization for leaders, that person that, you know, somewhere in the middle, he can't change everything, but he just, he, you know, he's a brick in the wall, a cog in the machine. What, what does coaching, what would you say to that person? And then what would you say to somebody that did have organizational wide remit? We'll just, you know, have you each do a quick bullet on each one of those. Quick bullets. That's a real challenge for us. We'll do a long one. It's fine. It's our podcast. Hit it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. We'll start with people. Well, both of you, what's, what would you say to an individual? You don't 
you're just out there in the world, what would you say to them about coaching? If you can more often adopt a coaching mindset of being curious, open, and non-judgmental, what we like to call being a, a new kind of con artist, and more often ask questions and listen, all of your interactions with other people are going to be easier. Awesome. Shauna, what do you say to the individual? I, that, I would definitely, a plus one to Brody. All right, Brody's, um, Brody stole your thunder. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I, I think that's it. And that through that also realizing just how much we have an impact on our experience of the world, right? And that we can change that with a coaching mindset and skill set. And thus, like, even if the world doesn't change, because we, you know, have some impact on that, our experience of it can change. And that is incredibly powerful. Plus one to that, Shauna. It's all the matrix. I love it. All right. So now let's go to the leader level, right? If you're, you know, that mid-level manager, director, VP, something like that, senior manager, what would you say to that person about coaching? Oh, you're the linchpin. What's that mean? So, you know, and, and we're talking about like maybe mid-level managers, but even as we talk about like for frontline managers, they are the ones who are really contributing the most to the daily lived experience of 80% of the workforce, right? And so again, like how they show up with their direct reports has a massive effect um, on the overall organization. And so this idea of, man, if, if we can get managers, leaders to show up a little bit more coach-like, a little more curious, a little more open, a little less judgmental, creating more space for people to show up as their whole selves, um, that, and, and we have research on this, we have, have science on this to show that there, it has a massive ripple effect. And even just the, the aspect of that first stage, you like working on filling your own cup so that you can pour out of it for someone else, like that has a massive effect of, of, you know, a leader whose well-being is higher has higher performing teams who also have higher well-being and things like that. So it, I think for the leaders, it's just like, man, you have a lot of power. And so, you know, adopting this, just shifting a little bit can have a really big impact. And so that's like pretty exciting. Awesome. Brody, what do you have to say to the leader? You know, I completely agree with every single thing Shauna said. So I'm going to talk less about outcomes and more about application, which is that I see a lot of leaders have a misconception that they can only use their coaching skills downward when in fact your coaching skills can be incredibly powerful in every direction with your team, with your peers, with your leader, with clients and customers, use them in every direction. All right. So org. You're sitting in the chief human resource level, or you're the CEO. You just listen to this podcast because we have a bunch of them that listen here. Um, and you read the book. And you read the book. First of all, go buy this book. <laughs> we trash on so many books out there. But this one's a good one. So if it's not sitting on your shelf, and don't just put it on your shelf and not read it like many of you executives do. You know who you are. But go buy the coaching book and actually read it and let it look all, you know, ate up because you've read it and referred it so many times on your shelf. But if you're that person at the top, the C-suite, the head person in charge, and you can really impact things, what would you say to that person about coaching? 
So I have one here and, you know, not to get too squishy, but so Brody mentioned earlier this idea that um, coaching has this core assumption that the other person has the answer. And, you know, what we like to say here is that the other person is creative, resourceful, and whole. So as a CEO, if you were to step back and look at your organization, your policies, your practices, your managers, your norms, and say, what would this look like if every person in my organization was creative, resourceful, and whole? Because so much of how we design systems and processes and everything is for the worst case scenario or for the, you know, and, and some of that's natural and needed or whatever. But I think we get to a very different construct and a, di a very different culture in an organization if we start from the place that everyone is creative, resourceful and whole. Brody. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to compliment that with another three word list. Some of you, I think it's. Daniel Pink's work, where he talks about the importance of autonomy, mastery, and purpose for people to be highly engaged. And I think if you assume that people are creative, resourceful, and whole, and you approach them in such a way, you can lead to some of those outcomes of autonomy, mastery, and purpose, which will lead to a more highly engaged workforce. And we can talk about all the downstream effects of engagement. Um, and so just remembering that coaching is not just squishy and feel good and a warm hug, it actually leads to important outcomes that can really impact the way that people are engaging and showing up and approaching the work that they do, which can lead to important outcomes in terms of their performance and what they're producing and how they're engaging with others and retention of good people, uh, net, net promotion of your organization. So, you know, you start pulling the thread and I think a lot of really powerful outcomes can come from the mindset that Shauna mentioned. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I, I've really appreciated your insights and your knowledge uh, about coaching. Um, where might people find you and the book on the web? Well, you can definitely find us on LinkedIn. And we will we'll post links to those in the, in the show notes. Yep. Um, we're, we're going to have a website eventually. We're just a little, we're moving a little slowly. Although we, should we talk about our, our backup domain name or is that inappropriate? Um, it can be edited out. Yeah. It's totally appropriate. <laughs> Did we tell you, we told you guys about that, didn't we? No. What is this like? Gorillacoaches.com. <laughs> oh, we should get I'm that domain it. name though, Brody. <laughs> no, it's even better. So originally our book was just supposed to be called shift. But then our publisher was like, we should really put the word coaching in there somewhere. So we're like, okay, the coaching shift. And so we did buy the domain name shift book, shift hyphen book, I think. And then we had these moments right when we were about to submit the book where we were like, is this terrible? You know, after you write a book, you kind of black out and like forget what you just did. And so as our insurance policy, in case it was terrible, <laughs> we also bought the domain name shift book so that we could post <laughs> videos of ourselves reading all the negative reviews of the book and then make money yeah, on awesome. a parody site of ourselves. So we have those. There's nothing there right now, but technically they exist. I, I hope you're so successful with this book that the parody and the real site makes you all the money in the world. That's right. I, I really That's right. That. Well, we'll post links to your LinkedIn's uh, in the show notes, as well as where you are on Twitter and so forth, as well as a, a link to, to the book as well. Um, out there for folks to buy. Thank you. Um, 
So at this point, I'd just like to say, Shauna and Brody, thank you so much for being a part of the Indigo podcast. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. It's great to see you all. This is so much fun. Chris and Ben, I hope we gave you good stuff for your podcast. But like, even if we did a terrible job, we still had a really great time. It's so much fun to talk to you guys. You ask really great questions. It's a fun conversation. And I just really appreciate that you invited us to join you. We knew you would crush it, by the way. We just knew it. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.